Well, Faith Family, one of the great joys that uh, I have as your pastor is getting to open God's Word with you. What's really special about our staff is that the Lord has really given us a lot of great leaders who can rightly handle the the word of truth. And uh, several of us do lots of different camps and retreats and Disciple Now weekends as different preachers. This past summer, I was at Shaco Springs uh, over in Talladega, uh, in which I had a student who requested to talk to the preacher after the last worship set. And so I went and stayed after her and went and met with this young man, about 17 years old, and his youth pastor was standing there, and he had tears streaming down his cheek. And he said, in the last two years, I've had six of my friends die. My parents are getting a divorce. And my question is this, is God good, but not in control? Or is God in control, but he's not good? And I sat there and I was amazed by his wrestling. Let me ask you, how would you respond in that moment? What would you say to a young man like that? He doesn't need cliches. He needs truth to stand upon in the moment of trial. And I told him, I said, buddy, here's the deal. The Bible tells us that God is both good and sovereign. He's both. And you can trust him. What we see throughout the scriptures is that God is in control of all things. Nothing is outside of the scope of his sovereignty. And yet simultaneously, his character is good and trustworthy. He is someone that you can trust and you can believe upon. What we are going to do as a faith family over the next five weeks is to look at the character of our big, good, sovereign, powerful, faithful God. And what I hope is that we're going to see together a right, faithful, accurate, God-sized view of God. We're going to see how God is good and he is up to good even when life does not feel good. We're going to see how God is sovereign even when he seems absent. You see, when injustice happens, we can trust the one who's reigning over the cosmos. When God's actions leave us scratching our heads, we're going to discover that he is working to display his glory in ways that we can't even imagine. And we're going to discover these things about who he is and how he works in the book of Habakkuk. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to the table of contents. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. In fact, the table of contents is an excellent resource. As you turn to the table of contents, you can see how God has ordered and organized his word. This is how he's revealed himself to us. And some of you are thinking Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Where is that located? So go ahead and grab your table of contents. Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. It is the 35th book. It is a minor prophet. 
It's not minor and significant. It's in significance. It's considered minor because of its size. We have prophets that are larger in their content, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But the Old Testament concludes with 12 minor prophets, 12 prophets who are smaller in their chapters, but still just as mighty in their contents. And so on your table of contents, look to see where the page number is located in your Bible as to where Habakkuk is located. And go ahead and turn to that book there with me now. As you turn there, it's important that you and I have context of what is leading up to the book of Habakkuk. So what I want to do is take some time to set the stage to help you and I understand of what is going on that is leading up to the significance of this book. You see, for you and I, as we follow Christ, as we walk with him until we take our last breath, we're going to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 2 Peter 3, 18. We are a people who are going to be falling more in love with God through his word. As you and I are rounding third and headed for home at the end of our life, we're still going to be discovering wondrous truths from God's word. It's important for us to understand the context of what's happening, so we're going to begin at the very beginning. The Bible says in Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who made the earth by the sound of his voice. In six days God made the world, and on the seventh day he rested. We see that on the sixth day God made man in his own image. He made, him, made them male and female. He made them in his image, in his likeness. God gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. It wouldn't be long until the tempter would come and tempt Eve to take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve took the fruit and ate of it and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And because of the sin, the disobedience of our first parents, sin entered into the world, affects all of creation, and through sin came death. We see that God, however, was still at work and had a plan. He told the serpent that the seed of the woman would come and crush his head. And sure enough, one day he would. God also sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of, of Eden, where he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And they did. Many generations would come and the earth began to populate. But as the population grew, so did evil among mankind. So because of the vast evil that was taking place all throughout the world, God brought judgment through a worldwide flood. This worldwide flood would be God's way of starting over with mankind. And yet through the flood, through the judgment, God made salvation possible. And he did it through a man named Noah. You see, it's through a wooden ark that Noah and his family would go in and be saved. Because there would one day come a future Noah, a greater and better Noah, that through his wooden cross would provide salvation through judgments. After the flood goes away, Noah and his family resettle and they begin to multiply, to fill the earth. As we see the population grow, the people, instead of scattering to the ends of the earth, gather into one location. They seek to build a tower to make their name great. So God, instead of allowing them to seek to disobey his commands, he brought confusion to them through confusing their languages. They had the inability to finish the project, and so they break up into groupings, linguistic groups, where they would become and set off and they would go fill the earth and scatter. 
Well, as the people scattered and generations came and went, God identified one man through whom he would begin something new. This young man, his name was Abram. It would be through Abram that God made a promise that through Abram, God would build a great nation. And it's through him and through his wife, Sarai, that God would raise up this great new nation. Over time, he changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. And sure enough, at the ripe old age of 100, Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac would grow up. He would get married. He would have a son who would name Jacob. We see Jacob would grow up, he would get married, and he would have 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was a man named Joseph. Joseph was one of Jacob's favorite sons and showed him great favor. This made all the other 11 brothers jealous of him, and so they decided to get rid of him. They sold him into slavery. Off, Joseph goes to Egypt, where over a course of time, God would raise him up to become the number two in charge of the entire country. Famine would strike the land, and it would be through Joseph that God would use him to preserve and protect the people from a lack of food. As the famine spreads throughout the land, the 11 brothers go to Egypt. They go to their brother, whom they don't realize is their brother, begging for food. Joseph realizes who they are. He shows mercy and provides food for his family. In fact, his father and the entire family of 70 people come south to Egypt where they will be provided for and protected. And that's where we get to the end of the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus picks up where 400 years have now passed in between Joseph and this new Pharaoh who has risen up. This Pharaoh does not remember Joseph and how God used him and his people to protect and preserve the nation. So he brings judgment upon the people of Israel. He enslaves them. And as they cry out for God to provide rescue, this Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So God raises up a prophet, a deliverer, Moses. Moses is God's appointed man who steps up and leads God's people out of Egypt through the providential acts of 10 plagues that fall upon the nation of Egypt. Eventually, the Pharaoh lets them go, and the people head out. As soon as they leave, the Pharaoh realizes, what have we just done? We've let our free slave labor go. So he rallies the army, and they go after the people of Israel. And yet God was faithful. He protected his people. When they got to the brink of the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea, and the people walked across on dry land. As they got to the other side, Pharaoh and his army pursue them into the Red Sea where the water crashes over top of them. As the people get to the other side, God begins to lead them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to the land of promise, a place that he had prepared for his people to go. On their way, God revealed himself to Moses about the laws of the land, how the people are to relate with one another, how he is to be worshipped, and how faithful he would be with them into the end. As the people are headed that way, they get to the brink of the promised land. And once they get to the brink, they pick 12 spies to go into the land, to scout it out, and to come back and report and see what they find. Of the 12, 10 of those 12 came back and said, there's no way. We're like grasshoppers amidst giants. They're going to kill us. They're going to crush us. What has God done to us? There were two, Joshua and Caleb, who said, God can do this. 
Let's go take this land. Unfortunately, the people of Israel did not listen to the two. They listened to the ten. And because they did not believe God and they did not go into the land of promise, God brought judgment. He told them, everyone who is 20 and older will die in the wilderness. And so for 40 years, the people of Israel just wandered in the desert for 40 years. Eventually, that generation died off. Moses dies. God raises up Joshua, and they cross the Jordan, and they go and take the land. As they go into the land, they divide it up amongst the 12 tribes. Everyone gets the land in which they are going to now live. After Joshua dies, then we get to the book of Judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There is no leader to shepherd the people. Everyone does whatever they want to do. And that's when we see this cycle of apostasy. We see this circle, this cycle that takes place where the people forget the Lord. They do whatever they want to do. And eventually, God brings judgment through an attacking nation. The people of Israel are attacked and they cry out to God, would you save us? God raises up a judge who steps up and protects the people. He preserves the people. The people repent. They return to the Lord. God saves them. And they get back into a right relationship with God and then they forget him again. And over and over and over, this cycle continually takes place throughout the book of Judges. After the 400 or so years of the book of Judges, the people look around at all these nations around them and they say, God, all these other nations have kings. We don't have a king. We want a king. God says, well, I'll be your king. And they say, no, we want a real king. So God says, okay, this is what you've asked for. So God gives them King Saul, who starts well, but doesn't lead well. Eventually, he disqualifies himself from service. And so God raises up a young shepherd boy, David, to become the new king. And we see the last half of the book of 1 Samuel is this pursuit in which Saul is trying to kill David. It's this pursuit of trying to eliminate this guy who's going to be his predecessor. Well, eventually King Saul dies out and David arises in the ranks. And even though he's a man who's after God's own heart, even though David was a man who God made a covenant in which there would, his descendant would always sit upon his throne forever, David walked in foolishness made some bad decisions, which not only brought destruction to the nation, but drama to his family. He wasn't the perfect king that the people of Israel were looking for. After David dies off, his son Solomon takes the throne. As Solomon ascends the throne, he is, has this dream in which the Lord says, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. He cries out for God to give him wisdom. And God says, because you asked for that, I'm not only going to make you wise, I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to give you peace on all of your borders. And I'm going to show you great favor. And throughout his life, Solomon had the great favor of God upon him until he married thousands of women. He became sexually promiscuous and he took his eyes off the Lord and he finishes in a total catastrophe. And that is when things get messy we see that the nation of Israel has a big fight. They break up into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is led by only wicked kings. These kings who would not turn to the Lord, these kings who would not lead the people to worship God. Eventually, the Lord brought judgment on the northern kingdom through the pagan nation of Assyria. 
Assyria came in, attacked the northern kingdom, took them into captivity, and they never returned. The southern kingdom was led mostly by evil kings, but with some good ones sprinkled in. There were some good kings like Asa and Hezekiah and, and Jehoshaphat. There were some good ones in there, but mostly there were some evil kings leading in Judah as well. We saw a revival that took place under the leadership of King Josiah, but ultimately the people turned their back away from the Lord. The nation at this point is full of corruption. The northern kingdom has gone into captivity. The southern kingdom is a hot mess. And that is where Habakkuk finds himself. He is surrounded by people who are corrupt, selfish, arrogant, violent, and have nothing to do with the Lord. They do not love the Lord. They're walking in foolishness. And here he is in the book of Habakkuk, bringing his discouragement, bringing his prayers to God. You see, Habakkuk is different from the other prophets. Instead of speaking to the people on behalf of God, Habakkuk speaks to God on behalf of the people. And the prophet, he wrestles with God in prayer regarding God's justice. Has he seemingly allowing evil to thrive without accountability? And this is where it all begins. So for the sake of our gathering this morning to set the stage for the next four weeks that are to come, let's look together in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says this, the pronouncements that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Right here in verse one, I want you to notice not only what's in the text, but what this means for you. I want you to see first Habakkuk's burden for his nation. Habakkuk's burden for his nation, verse one. It says the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Some of your translations might use the word for verse one, pronouncement or oracle. That word carries the idea of a burdensome message. It's a message that's too heavy to carry. Habakkuk looks at the condition of Judah and it's weighing heavy upon his heart. He looks around the, the nation and he sees violence and injustice, oppression and dishonesty, idolatry, corrupt leadership and wickedness and it bothered him. He was broken over the spiritual and moral condition of God's people. But you see, Habakkuk's burden for God's people is actually pointing forward to an even greater prophet who would one day come and be burdened for God's people. For indeed, Jesus would go upon the Mount of Olives and he would look over the landscape of Jerusalem and weep, broken over the disobedience and the foolishness of God's people because they missed him. The promised Messiah that they've been looking for, they totally did not believe the Lord. They totally did not obey the Lord. They missed the Messiah. And yet this burden for people who are lost is exactly how God feels for the world. He looks upon the people whom he has made, who do not know him, who do not believe upon him, and it burdens him, and it motivates him to action. And we see this action take place in the sending of Jesus, who is the rescue to bring mankind back into a right relationship with himself. You see, the Lord looks upon the condition of the world and he sends Jesus as the rescuer. The Lord looks upon your brokenness, 
the Lord looks upon your sin and my sin and says, this is my solution and it's my son. I'm giving my son through the cross to make a way to bring you back into a right relationship with me. We see a God who is burdened over the spiritual condition of the world, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That God loves the world and he proves it by the giving of his son. The gospel is God's way of saying, you matter to me. I want you to know how much I care about you. I don't want you to stay in your sinful condition. I don't want you to stay in your broken state. I want to bring you back to myself. Because it's only in me, the Lord, that you can find life. That you can find your life reorganized around what is true and right and beautiful. Well, Habakkuk is looking amongst the people and he is just broken. And as we're going to see in next week in verses 2 through 4, where he is just burdened so much, he brings it to the Lord in prayer. He looks around at the ungodliness of the nation of Israel, and it leads him to pray on behalf of the people. And what we're going to see next week, the Lord's going to answer his prayer in a way that he did not see coming. You see, God's going to raise up a wicked nation, even worse than Judah, to bring judgment on the people. And I want you guys to see this, okay? This is going to be a theme that you're going to hear throughout this study, is that God permits the sinful actions of the wicked to accomplish his greater purposes. Don't miss that. It's a big truth. It's woven all throughout Scripture. God uses the wicked to accomplish his greater purposes purposes. We see this in the life of Joseph. Here's a guy who's been sold into slavery. His brothers have sent him away. They've told his dad, Jacob, hey, your son Joseph, your favorite, he's dead. And here he is. We see throughout the life of his study where he's in prison, where he's forgotten for years before he rises up to prominence. Here's a guy who suffered greatly. He's been through years of being forgotten and neglected, separated from his people, separated from his family, rejected by his brothers. Who does that sound like? And there is Joseph in Egypt, suffering. And God providentially brings his 11 brothers who are bowing at his feet. And once they realize that it's their brother whom they've turned their back upon, Did you ever notice what he says in Genesis 50, verse 20? Joseph tells his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that interesting? Joseph is saying, you guys had evil plans against me, but there was a bigger plan behind your evil plans. There was a God who was working through your evil purposes to accomplish something bigger than you can see. We see it all throughout scripture in which God is permitting the evil actions of people to accomplish his greater purposes. You see, God is good and he can never sin And he can never do evil. He's righteous, he's pure, and holy in all of his ways. In Deuteronomy 32.4, says he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. 
though God can, and one day God will stop evil, he permits it to accomplish his greater purposes to display his glory and to work for our good. Are you guys with me here? Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, don't miss that, all things, everything, even the evil purposes of those who hate God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, God allows and God ordains evil without himself being evil. We see this ultimately realized in the cross where God used the greatest evil that has ever happened and he used it for our salvation. That God is glorified through the crushing of his son on the cross for us. The greatest injustice that has ever happened happened to Jesus. The perfect one who's never sinned is treated as the sins of the world are now upon him. But this was all a part of the preordained plan of God. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You see, the cross was God's plan. But note who did the crucifixion. It was the Jews. They're responsible. It was the Romans. They're responsible. And it's us. We're responsible. You see, it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was your disobedience against him that put him there. But it was the foreordained plan of God for his son to experience the greatest evil that's ever happened. And yet, what did God do through the cross? He rescues us. He forgives us. He adopts us. He brings us into his family. He calls us his own. This is what God's done for us in the gospel. And yet, as Habakkuk is burdened over the spiritual and moral condition of Judah, he is at a point of just utter desperation. He's broken over this. Well, today, you and I live in a nation that's not unlike Judah. You see, we live among a people who are full of violence, dishonesty, injustice, idolatry, corrupt leadership, and wickedness. I think Isaiah 5 describes really well where we are in our nation. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are champions at pouring beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. And as we live in a nation that is spiritually lost, the question is this, does it bother me? 
Are you burdened over the spiritual and moral condition of our nation? Does it bother you that you have friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and teammates who if they died today, they would be separated from God and live forever in hell? Does it bother you? Are you burdened over that? If you can't remember the last time you wept over unbelievers, you need to get on your face and say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. That we live among a people who want nothing to do with you. And this is the mission field in which you've placed us. Amongst the people who think they're already Christians because they live in the South. Amongst the people who think that to be a Christian means I go to church. I'm saved because I go to church. Nope. Not in Scripture. You go to church because you are in Christ, not to be in Christ. You see, there's this hard soil that you and I live in is that we need to convince people that they're not saved before they can understand that they can be saved. There's this presumption that because I grew up around sweet tea and football that I immediately know Christ. That's not the truth. You know, one of the, the benefits of, of living up north, and I'll, I'll call Kentucky the north, when I lived up there, in the specific area in which we lived, it wasn't cool to be a Christian. There was a clear distinction. It's like, why would I ever believe that? There's no benefits with following Jesus. But you see, if you're in Christ, you're burdened over the brokenness around you. Question, are you broken? Habakkuk is looking around at Judah, and he's broken over what he sees. And you see, the solution is not getting someone else in the White House or in Congress. The solution is not filling your pocket with more money. The solution is not by sarcasm or screaming on social media. The solution is found at the foot of a bloodstained cross. It's when you and I humble ourselves and we confess our sin and our brokenness to God and we say, God, I need Jesus and I want you to so change me by this gospel and I'm gonna take this to the mission field. I'm going to my neighbors and the nations with this gospel because there's nothing more important than this, than the gospel. This is what we rally around as believers. And it's because someone was broken for us that you and I have believed Someone prayed, someone told us the gospel, and now here you and I sit in the gospel on this day and hour in history. And here's what I'm wrestling through. We talked about this week at Stafford Street, is how can we get the gospel out to as many people as possible? How can we make sure this gospel does not end with us? You see, Habakkuk is broken over what's happening around him. And so this morning, maybe a time in which you need to humble yourself before the Lord. And would you, you just get low and say, God, would you, would you turn my heart to you and you alone? Let's cast our burden upon the Lord because he cares for us. Let's be a people who are broken over what matters. So we see first in the text Habakkuk's burden for his nation. But secondly, I want you to see in verse one, Habakkuk's struggle with God's apparent apathy. Key word, apparent what we must not miss here is this struggle of verse one, the prophet. Here is a man of God who is wrestling with the justice of God. Habakkuk's perspective is, God, how can you be good? And apparently you're turning an eye to blatant, obvious sins of your people. Here's a man who's struggling because God appears to be apathetic. 
God, you're lethargic. You're uninterested in the evil that's so prevalent in Israel. Habakkuk saw the sexual immorality of idol worship that was taking places in the high places of Baal worship. Habakkuk was familiar with the screams of babies who were laid on the burning hands of Molech and sacrificed. Here's a man who looked around. He saw the poor who were being taken advantage by the wealthy. He saw where people were doing violent acts in the daylight without shame or fear of consequence. This is a guy who's surveying the landscape of the place and the people in which he lives. And he's like, God, are you going to let all these people get away with it? You're not going to respond? God, why aren't you doing something? Here's what we're going to see in the text. God sees. God knows. And God will hold accountable. Moreover, the Lord is going to call Habakkuk to trust him. Habakkuk, I need you to trust me. And so I say to you today, trust the Lord, especially when you do not understand what he is doing. I say it to us as a church, faith family, trust the Lord, especially when we do not understand what he is doing. I say it to you as a believer, trust the Lord, especially when you do not understand what he is doing. Habakkuk's looking around the nation. He's like, come on, Lord, what are you doing? And the Lord's like, trust me, trust me. Now, if the Lord is sovereign, and he is, and if the Lord is good, and he is, then you and I got to take our hands off the steering wheel. We got to stop telling God what to do. We're on his team, not the other way around. We follow him, not the other way around. Now remember Habakkuk's a prophet. He's mature in his faith. He's, he's struggling to understand, but he's mature. But let's let that be a lesson to us, y'all. You see, spiritual maturity does not mean that you do not struggle. Spiritual maturity means you struggle over the right things. Spiritual maturity means that you're bothered by the right things. That we're more upset over injustice in the world than we are over a scoreboard on a Saturday night. That we're more bothered by the spiritual condition of our schools and our teenagers and our broken homes than we are of how many followers and likes that we've got. We're people who look around and we're broken to see everything falling apart around us. And yet simultaneously, we're trusting in the Lord, saying, God, I trust that you're doing something here that I can't see. So I'm going to bank my soul upon you. I'm going to trust by faith that you're doing something that I cannot see in the midst of this. And this is where Habakkuk finds himself. As he's struggling, he's asking the Lord, what are you doing? And yet simultaneously, there is a steadfastness, trusting in the Lord. See, the Lord is not blind, he sees. He is not dumb, he knows. 
He is fully aware of every evil and injustice happening on every square inch of this world. Nobody gets away with anything before the all-seeing eye of God. He's fully aware. And so we trust him. That doesn't mean that we throw our hands up and say, well, I'm not going to fight for justice. I'm not going to get in God's way. No, no. We are part of the, the ministers, the ambassadors, all of us working for the good, laboring for justice, doing what's right. And yet simultaneously, we're trusting in the one who is even using the unjust, foolish, evil ways of unbelievers to accomplish his greater purposes. So we keep trusting him. And so we respond to him in the same way that Habakkuk does in chapter three, which we'll get to, but it's number three, and it's this. Habakkuk's embrace of the Lord. The name Habakkuk means to embrace, to cling to something. The book of Habakkuk ends with the prophet clinging to, embracing the Lord. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to today? What's your impact point? It's this, cling to the Lord, for he is both good and sovereign. I'm calling us to have a white-knuckled grip upon Christ. Why? Because he's grabbed hold of us and he's never gonna let us go. That John 10, no one can snatch you from his omnipotent hands. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That he has sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. That you are an adopted son and daughter and guess what? You can't get out of the family if you wanted to. He's keeping you, sustaining you, and says you are mine both now and forever. And so as you go through hardship in life, and you will, as you experience injustice, because it's coming, when you are, have tears coming down your cheek and you're saying, God, why? You can simultaneously say, Lord, I trust you because you are good and you are sovereign.